My name is Devin Coughlin. I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace Church. And it is a uh, unique morning as we, uh, a sober morning uh, in particular as we, as a dear member of our church unexpectedly and tragically died on Monday. But there is no place that I would rather be than together this morning. We come as a people burdened by grief. We come as a people hurting and heartbroken for the Story family. Yet, we come together as a people of hope. The Apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3, 15. He says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This morning, this is what I aim to do, to, to make a defense for the hope that is in us. And this begins by, with an acknowledgement of reality. In order to grasp our hope, in order to lay hold on the hope that we have, we must begin with an honest account of what is real. I often will describe our, our gatherings, and, and we'll talk about it in terms of language, uh, of, or as a reorientation to reality. So we gather, to be, we gather together to be reminded of what's really real. All week long, there, there are voices telling us stories. It could be through advertising, through television and movies, through books, through news, through social media, through our friends and coworkers. Stories are all around us, and they're all vying for our attention. They all say, listen, listen up, listen to me. And all of them have something to say about how we should view the world. They tell us what life should be like, what the good life should be like. They tell us that life should be one way and not another. They tell us that if we buy this, then we'll be happy. Or if we go to that place, then we'll be happy. Or if we accomplish this or achieve that, then we'll get to the good life. They shape and form how we think of the good life, how we think about what's really worth living for. These stories are all around us all the time. Most of these stories that our culture tells us are stories that ignore the reality of suffering. They deny the reality of death. So many of the stories that, that we hear tell us that to pursue our own happiness, to pursue our own dreams, to accumulate stuff and places and memories, to fill our hearts and to fill our minds, fill our cares, to stay busy, to stay distracted, the result of all this is that we don't have to think about death. We can ignore death. But death is a reality that is not concerned with our culture's stories. Death doesn't care what our culture says. It's an inconvenient truth that we often ignore until we can't ignore it anymore, like us gathered here this morning. Death is an inescapable part of the reality of life on this earth. All of us, all of us are dying people. All of us must face the reality of death. So as we gather together week after week, we don't and we haven't ignored this reality. We, we sing the same songs that we normally sing because we talk about this reality that Christ indeed is our only hope in life and in death. So we come together to view reality in light of ultimate reality. We gather together week after week to be reminded of the one story that is above all other stories. 
It's a story that puts death in its place. It's the story of the reality definer, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we come this morning and every week to be shaped by and formed by and find our place in His story, in God's story. And we want to do this especially in times of grief, especially in times of sorrow. Those moments when we are, are confused and perplexed, when we are worn down and discouraged, heartbroken and hopeless. In those moments, alternative realities, virtual realities, they're not going to help us. They can't sustain us. They cannot give us strength. They cannot deliver peace. They cannot obtain for us eternal hope. But God can and does through His Word. So we gather together to hear Him, to hear His story, to have our thoughts and our affections shaped by what He says about this life. We want to be transformed by what He says about who He is. That's what we do every week, and it's no different this morning. That's what we are here to do together this morning. But this morning, we're going to take a break from our series in Matthew and consider instead the Word of God uh, in Lamentations 3. If you're unfamiliar with where the book of Lamentations is, it's going to be towards the middle of your Bible, and it's sandwiched right in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So if you're in Psalms or Isaiah or Jeremiah, it comes after that, it comes before Ezekiel. You can go ahead and turn there. Lamentations 3. I'm going to have two simple points for us this morning, and both are concerned with reality. Concerned with life as it is. Not life how we wish it to be, but life as it is. The first point is going to be the reality of our grief. And the second is the reality of our hope. Now in order to understand our hope, we must begin with point number one, the reality of our grief. Grief is the direct effect of man's fall into sin. When God created the heavens and the earth, and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, in paradise, there was no grief there. There was no suffering that stained God's good creation. But when humanity rejected God, when man chose to pursue, try to pursue knowledge and goodness outside of God, sin came into the world. Death came into the world. Grief came into the world. And since that moment, the rest of human history has been marked by the reality of grief, the reality of disappointment, of despair. It's an inescapable reality. A few places in Scripture articulate this grief more poignantly than Lamentations. Lamentations, as its title describes, is a serious and sad book. It's an extended lament, which means that it is a a, a passionate expression of sorrow and grief. And in Lamentations, we, we find Jeremiah's response to the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem did not just trip and fall. Jerusalem was taken over and destroyed by the Babylonians. And the people that lived in Jerusalem, they were, they were made to suffer. They were starved. Many were killed. Families were torn apart. And all were completely devastated. Everything in Jerusalem had gone wrong. Nothing had gone right. And as Jeremiah looks over the city, as he grieves the destruction, as he records the despair, when we come to chapter 3, he begins to describe his, his personal suffering 
and anguish. This wasn't just something that was out there, but something that was happening to him. And so he acknowledges the reality of his own grief. It's not just the city out there that faces great trouble. He himself suffers. So if you're there, look at Lamentations 3.1. He says this, I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. All the writer of Lamentations knows, all that he experienced, all that he sees is affliction. Everywhere he turns. And it's not just an affliction that comes from some outside circumstance. He attributes it directly to God. The prophet says, God has brought me into darkness. God has turned his hand against me. And the prophet goes on, look down to verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. In his affliction and in his grief, Jeremiah has been brought down to the ground. He is as low as he can be, teeth grinding on gravel, eating dirt, cowering in ashes. And this has, doesn't just affect him externally, but it has an internal effect. It affects his soul, his heart, his mind. Verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Bereft of peace, meaning he, he doesn't have it. There is no peace, no rest for this suffering soul. All is turmoil, all is unsettled. So great is his grief, his suffering, that he says he has forgotten what happiness is. The anguish is so deep that even the idea of joy, the idea of good, anything good, the idea of happiness has been forgotten. It's, it's impossible. When I first heard of Brian's death, my mind was drawn to the questions the psalmist asks in Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. Listen to these questions. Psalm 77, verse 7 through 9. The psalmist asks this, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Now these are questions that are in the Bible. They're not there by mistake. And in verse 18, uh, Jeremiah says this, chapter 3, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. This is the bottom of the reality of his grief. He has lost his will to go on. He's given up. He has no hope. All that he knows, all that he can imagine imagine is sadness and suffering and despair. And it's here that we must acknowledge something. There are times in life when this is exactly where we are. And if you haven't faced those times yet, you will one day. This is exactly what we feel. And we should not and cannot deny it. Now there are some who want us to believe that if we follow Jesus, then everything's going to work out just fine. They want us to think that we can have our best life now. They tell us to just, you know, think positively. Just think about the right things and you're going to have a good life. And while we know this is not true, I think most of us 
we kind of, we want these things to be true. One theologian, a man who has terminal cancer, he's dying of cancer, he confesses this. He says, when I'm honest in my day-to-day life, I feel a genuine attraction to the prosperity gospel. I don't want a private jet or the accomplishment and fame of a basketball star, but I would like to live long enough to see my children graduate from high school. Is that asking so much, God? And we can begin to think of God as one who only and always heals, who only and always restores and revives. But then we experience the reality of suffering, the reality of grief, and we don't know what to say. We don't know how this fits with the Christian faith. But it's here that we should be comforted by the fact that the Bible is not reality-denying, but reality-defining. It speaks honestly of our suffering, of our despair. In the Bible, God gives us a vocabulary of despair, a vocabulary of grief. And so that's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 77. He asks these questions, has God forgotten to be gracious? Jeremiah says, my endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord. These are questions and statements and thoughts that are in the Bible. They're not there by mistake, like, oh, God just had a little bit of an oversight and these words just slipped in. The questions that we want to ask in the face of unexplainable tragedy are the very questions that God gives us to ask. Scripture helps us to articulate the questions that are on our minds and hearts, to articulate the the feelings of despair that we have. Again, God gives us a vocabulary of despair, a vocabulary of grief. But God does not just provide us with a vocabulary in questions. Thanks be to God. He provides those questions, those words, but he answers those questions. You see, God does not leave us in a place of hopeless grief or unanswered questions. Instead, he comes to us in our grief and he brings comfort. He comes to us with his word and gives answers. The reality of grief is not some uncomfortable thing to suppress. It does not need to be evidence of ungratefulness or unbelief. Grief does not need to be a dead end for us. Grief is a road we walk to hope. Grief is a road we walk to Jesus. And let's look at how this plays out for Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 3.18, we see that he has given up on hope. It's perished. It's dead. But look how Jeremiah responds in his despair. He prays. Jeremiah's response to giving up on hope is prayer. And we see this beginning in 19. His voice changes. He goes from talking about God... He has made my teeth grind on gravel. To now, at the mention of the Lord in verse 18, he begins to talk to God in verse 19. Look there. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Praying to God, Jeremiah confesses the the bitterness that he drinks. The hopelessness that is always in his mouth. And it humbles him. It brings him down to nothing. And what does, he, what does he do at his lowest point? What does he do as he is humbled? He doesn't deny what he's feeling. He doesn't sugarcoat it or pretend it's not there. He doesn't think positive thoughts and you'll get through it. No, he says, I am afflicted. I am wandering. And I can't stop thinking about it. He articulates these things in prayer. And isn't this how it is in our grief? When we face overwhelming trials... They're always right there on our minds. 
despair and sadness. They become our, our constant companions. My soul continually remembers it. But this sadness and grief, this hopelessness and despair is not where Jeremiah's lament ends. It's not where God's word leaves us. No, it's here in this place of lowliness and sorrow that we must speak to ourselves what God has already spoken. And so while God's word acknowledges the reality of grief, all the more it speaks to, second point, the reality of our hope. The reality of our hope. Up until this point, Jeremiah has been viewing God in light of his circumstances. And in a sense, he has been saying all of these things have been happening because God is a certain kind of God. So God has brought affliction. God has brought destruction. God has brought judgment. God has brought all that is wrong around me. But at verse 21, this decisive shift takes place. Instead of viewing God in light of his circumstances, Jeremiah shifts to viewing his circumstances in light of God. Look at verse 21. But this... I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now Jeremiah is going to to remember a certain story that is bigger than all that he's facing. He's going to to call to mind certain things, certain facts, certain truths that matter more than the facts of his suffering and affliction. And it's in this remembrance that he has hope. So let us then consider his hope, our hope. Look at verse 22. Thanks be to God for these words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His steadfast love, His his committed, unchanging, never failing love never ceases. It does not run out. God can't forget it. We can't use it all up. It won't ever be diminished. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Have you ever seen Niagara Falls? I've never seen it in person, but I've seen pictures and I've seen videos. It's really big. There's a lot of water going over Niagara Falls. 3,160 tons of water flow over Niagara Falls every second. That's tons of water, not gallons of water, tons of water. About 700,000 gallons of water per second flowing pouring over Niagara Falls. It doesn't stop. It doesn't cease. It just keeps coming. Where all that water has come down, more comes after it. It never ceases. That's just a small picture. A small picture of the steadfast love of the Lord. Thanks be to God, it never ceases. It does not run dry. It is an ever-flowing fountain. And we receive this ever-flowing fountain of steadfast love and mercy because His mercies never come to an end. In God's unchanging character, in His steadfast love, we cannot be cut off from His goodness. We can't be cut off from His mercy, from receiving all of His grace to us. Despite whatever our circumstances are telling us, despite the stories that our culture tells us, we can't be separated from this love. For if God is for us, Brothers and sisters, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against any of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
even now, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Any circumstance. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul is sure and I am sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Grace Church, our God is a faithful God. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He was a faithful God on Sunday. He was a faithful God on Monday. He is a faithful God on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and every other day. He is the faithful God. You woke up last week with His mercy upon you. And you will wake up again tomorrow with His mercy upon you. And God is not divided or limited in any way. He doesn't have more mercy for us yesterday than He does today. He simply is always and forever. I am. I am who I am. God is not loving one day and holy the next. He's not merciful on Sunday and just on Tuesday. God simply is all of these things all of the time. And so Jeremiah, even in the midst of his tragic circumstances, in the midst of his suffering and affliction, he's able to call to mind the very character of God. He reminds himself of the story that he's been inhabiting. From the beginning, God has been and has shown Himself to be the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness that never cease. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is what Jeremiah calls to mind. This is who Jeremiah calls to mind. And this is what gives Jeremiah hope. It wasn't changed circumstances or solved problems. If he looked up, Jerusalem was still a disaster. Devastation all around. He didn't jump in a time machine and just go back and relive the good times. His hope was and is God. And so he declares in verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is my portion. Meaning the Lord is all He needs. The Lord is His all. His portion. And this is, this is a confession that we have to intentionally make. We say these things, the Lord is my portion, yet in our unbelief, we don't, we don't believe them. But we want to say these things because they're true. Since God is who He is, since He is faithful and merciful and unchanging and committed, Jeremiah has hope. We have hope. Jeremiah and we have all that we required. All we have, all we need, all we want is in Jesus. While we are heartbroken and grieving in the face of death, while we are perplexed and dismayed, we know reality. We know the reality of our grief, but even more than that, we know the reality of our hope. We know who and have seen who God is. 
And so instead of viewing God in light of our circumstances, we view our circumstances in light of God. The God who shows steadfast love and faithfulness again and again and again. As Jeremiah fixes his mind and thoughts on the reality of God, the mere fact that God is all of these things, merciful and loving and faithful, and He is all of these things to Jeremiah, how then does Jeremiah respond? How should we respond? Look at verses 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And Jeremiah responds to his rediscovered hope by simply waiting. It can feel kind of anticlimactic. Like, I mean, now that he's made this turn, I want all of his problems just to go away. I want all of his problems to be solved. But the Lord is good to those who wait for him. So Jeremiah waits and seeks and looks to God. He's not restless. He is not anxious. Instead, he waits quietly for the salvation of the Lord. But waiting implies something that we have to acknowledge. It's so important for us to recognize today. What we long for has not yet taken place. Brian died on Monday. I can't wish that away. We can't tell our sorrow to, you know, just stay home tomorrow. I don't want to deal with you. We must accept the reality of grief in the face of a world plagued by death. But we wait quietly and with hope. Not a, not a wishing hope that just wishes things will work out some way, somehow. We do not have a wishing hope. We have a sure hope. We have a sure hope in the reality of God. We have a never-failing hope in the One who sent His Son for us, who came into our darkness, entered our awful plight, who died for us that we might dwell with Him forever. You know, death brings with it these reminders to us, acknowledging the reality of death, the reality of grief. It, it reminds us that all that we love around us is impermanent. Nothing lasts. And at the same time, death reminds us that, that all that we love in this life is irreversible. We can't go back. As I raise my four children, it, time just flies. And my 14-year-old now, I, like, I can't go back to when he was three and four and five. I enjoy the times that now that he's 14, but they're, they're, like, I'm aware they're just fleeting. They're going away. I can't hold on to them. Time is irreversible. Death is irreversible. And this impermanence and this irreversibility, it tells us something else. This life, what we experience here, is irretrievable. Nothing is ours to keep. And this is hard. This is very hard. At the end of the day, everyone loses everything. But thanks be to God that Jesus came to give us that which death cannot touch. Death does not mean the end of our hope. Death is not the end of God's story. Death is not the end of Brian's story. It's not the end of Mike Stogsdale's story or Denise Griney's story or Kathy Charnley or Scott Hall's story. For all those who place their hope and trust in Jesus Christ, we can confidently state that we are headed to where Jesus has already gone. It's where Kathy Rohr is now. She is where Jesus has already gone, passing from death to life. 
We are in a room full of dying people, people of both grief and hope, as we await the day that death will be no more. And we serve a God who indeed is the resurrection and the life. He is the God over death. And He came into the world that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. He is the living one. The living one who died. But who now holds the keys of death in His hands. So while we grieve the reality of death, we do not need to grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have died, those who have fallen asleep. And so, brothers and sisters, we trust in Him today as we wait for His salvation. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for revealing Yourself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all our sins with His precious blood and freed us from the tyranny of the devil, from the sting of death. Thank You that we serve a risen Savior. We follow a risen Savior who is seated at the right hand of God, His work complete, who indeed now is interceding for us. And may we wait for Him expectantly. Wait for Him in faith. Because we know He is coming again. So come Lord Jesus. Amen.